coming, and thank you for tolerating a little bit of close quarters in here, and we're kind of running out of food and stuff, but um, couldn't be more pleased to see you here. My name is Ann Luther. I'm um, the, from the League of Women Voters down east. I'm also affiliated with the State League of Women Voters of Maine. We have a great program of activities coming up for 2020 election year, so before I introduce our guest, I want to just promote some of the stuff that we've got coming up next year in case any of you are interested in joining us. One thing that we're going to be doing starting quite soon is voter turnout, voter registration, and get out the vote efforts in some low-income housing um, in partnership with Avesta Housing and some other partners. We're doing that in Portland, in um, Lewiston, Auburn, and in Bangor. And if any of you are interested in doing totally nonpartisan door-to-door, get-out-the-vote and voter education activity. We'd love to have you sign up for that activity. The other thing that we're going to be doing starting in March and April is assistance with the census. 2020 is a census year. There are going to be some hard-to-count and undercounted populations in Maine. It's super <coughs> important to Maine that we get an accurate census count and that everybody participate. The census is facing some very unusual challenges this year. It's underfunded. It's going to be online for the first time. So it's going to be very important for us to reach out to those people who may not have Internet access or may be reluctant to participate because of their thinking about citizenship and the census. Um, so if you're interested in helping us support census work, that will be in the March and April time frame. Then um, election 2020 is going to be a big, high-profile presidential election. And another effort that we're launching for the November election will be to field a team of election observers to especially rural uh, election centers to make sure that the election is conducted in an appropriate way and to gather data about which election locations have encountered problems conducting the election um, fairly and with well-trained personnel. So if you're interested in training up as an election observer and sitting for you know, 8 or 12 hours in some podunk town to observe how things go, we really love to have about 100 people sign up for that. And if you'd be one of them, that would be great. Just let us know. So it's going to be a great year. Um, the League of Women Voters is really about elections, voter engagement, voter turnout, and the good conduct of elections. And so with that, um, I would like to introduce our guest, and I'm uh, so pleased to have her here today. Molly and Dana is the ambassador from the Penobscot Nation. She has been an activist for Native American rights since she was a teenager, I believe, and is representing her tribe and her people with a lot of grace in my personal observation. Um, and I, and I, we're all very much looking forward to her talk about Thanksgiving as we approach the holiday on Thursday. So with no further ado, please, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Wow. Look at all of you. <laughs> good, good job getting the word out. Um, can everyone see me okay? I know I'm not the tallest person. I'll try to project uh, my voice. 
So uh, I want to thank the, the League of Women Voters for all the, the great work you do and for uh, your patience in rescheduling this event. We had had it on a different day, but I was stuck in Mississippi, which sounds like a horrible country song. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's true. That's what happened. Um, so I, I'm really excited to be here today. Thank you for all braving the weather. Uh, I think as of right now, it's just rain, so hopefully it stays safe for us all when we depart. I think this is a, a really important thing to be talking about and time for reflection as we come into Thanksgiving. We're coming off of the Indigenous Peoples Day events and all the conversation around those. And all of these topics are certainly things that are not new to me uh, and a lot of my people, but they're kind of things that have been catching on with everybody else. And, and we're starting to think about our real history individually and shared and how we all reconcile that and, and live together in, in truth and honesty and all that good stuff. So um, I will, I'll talk for a bit and I really do like having a discussion and taking questions and there's probably no question I haven't heard and I'm not easily offended. So don't be afraid to, um, to really go there if you want to. I think <laughs> we're all friends here. So I, I do want to say before we get going that I do celebrate Thanksgiving. I don't think this is a throwaway holiday uh, like Columbus Day. <laughs> that is just so kind of out there and offensive that, that we really got to do something about it. Uh, I do think a, a lot of indigenous people celebrate Thanksgiving and um, and we've kind of try to change the narrative on it a little bit um, for reasons I'll certainly get into in detail, but to celebrate the resilience and the knowledge and the stewardship of the land and the, the, um, the strong diplomacy, you know, this picture we have of the, the pilgrims and Indians sitting down in friendship, it, it wasn't so much um, out of the goodness of, of the indigenous people's hearts, it was a diplomatic move. It was kind of, you know, wanting to keep these people, um, you know, in your circle and knowing what they were up to. And so we'll get into that a little bit more. So we do want to celebrate um, the, the great skills of our ancestors in, in many, many ways. So I, you know, I had some people online say, you know, some people in the tribal, I like Thanksgiving and this is my favorite pie and, you know, don't take this away. And I, and I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I think there's really an opportunity here to all talk about how we want to celebrate this together. And um, I, I like to set up this discussion with a little story about how we tell history in America. Now, in 2005, um, I was already pretty radical. <laughs> I, ha I was 20 years old. I had kind of gotten into uh, the Indian mascot discussion, and I was doing activism around it. And I guess where that sparked for me, when I was about five, uh, five or six, I had watched Walt Disney's Peter Pan. And I had grown up until that point being kind of an anxious kid. You know, I, I, was all, I was like a worrier. I didn't sleep much. But something that gave me a lot of comfort in those early days was my culture. And I didn't live on the reservation yet. I lived in Dedham. And both my parents are Penobscot, so they were married then. And I think when we lived there, since we weren't in the community, they, want, they really wanted me to know who I, who I am. 
So I learned the language and the dances, and you know, my father would go on to become a chief, and he was always really uh, steeped in, in his identity and his culture. Uh, my mother would go on to become a school teacher at the school, and, and she's always, it's been a central part of who she is. So I had this source of comfort in my identity. I saw the movie Peter Pan, uh, which was the first time I kind of saw how dominant culture was seeing my people. And if anybody has seen this scene where they take the kids in Never Neverland uh, to this Indian encampment, you know, I, I don't know why we would place Indians with like fairies and mermaids and pirates and fake things, right? <laughs> things that are like lost and died away in myths. Um, and they're dancing around, they, they look stupid, um, they can't speak English, it's kind of broken, they're not even speaking their language, it's like this broken English thing. Uh, they have big red faces, big noses, a lot of stereotypes. The women are like, you know, they're, they're mean and trollish and really ugly, or they're like sexy and silent and like stealing people's boyfriends. <laughs> so we have this like, um, you know, none of, none of this is how I saw myself. And it kind of, you know, I was little, and kids are really resilient, so I, I think it spikes something in you, and then you kind of file it away, and, you're, you know, we'll deal with that later. Well, I dealt with it later. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I started seeing uh, kids in other schools using Indian mascots. And I remember the first time it really hit me, it was the Skowhegan Indians playing the Nokomis Warriors. Um, this started a 20-year love affair with myself in the town of Skowhegan. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're wearing fake feathers, fake war paint. Um, they're dancing around. They're doing a lot of the same behavior where I felt that they were wearing my existence like a costume, and that didn't feel fair, and it made me angry. Of course, over the years, I've learned how to intellectualize that and understand why the dehumanization leads to harmful things for my people and all that sort of thing. But at the time, it was just a lot of feelings. Um, and, and how am I going to do something about those feelings? I started talking at other schools with these mascots as kind of a youth educator. Uh, I got coordinated with mentors and adults to, to help me along, which I'm very thankful for, because I think about the kids facing these hard moments in their life and maybe they don't have that guidance maybe they don't have somebody telling them well of course these mascots are wrong of course it's okay that you feel angry or hurt um so let me help you through this you know i i think a lot of kids maybe deal with this and people are like oh you know just you know be quiet about it you know swallow those feelings this is how things are we just need to get by um so i i'm very fortunate in that way so i in 2005 myself and my sister and a bunch of my cousins and a lot of my family, we go down to the opening of the Smithsonian uh, Native American Museum in Washington, D.C. And it was really a life-changing uh, moment for me. You all left me with decaf coffee, so I'm already not happy with this room. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> um, it's delicious, though. It's great. <laughs> So we go to so we go to the opening of the museum, and in the days leading up to that, you know, there's a lot of events going on, and there's this huge march um, of all these indigenous people from all over the country. It was the most like Indians I've ever seen in one place, and the people from our tribe, uh, we carried a birch bark canoe that our tribal members had made, and we're singing and drumming, and we're all wearing traditional clothing and everything. And as we're marching, we're going by 
pair of um, memorabilia stores for the Washington Redskins football team. You know, so so there's that contrast going on, and. The, the day before our museum, oh, I call it our museum, the, the Native American Museum opened, we had visited the Holocaust Museum, and I was with a group of about 10 or 12 people, and we made our way through it, and it took me a good hour and a half longer than everybody else. I kind of stopped. I don't know if anybody's been there, but it's it's overwhelming. I stopped at every single exhibit. I read every single thing I could read. I let, you know, the room with all the shoes of the people had to take them off before they went into the chamber. Uh, it really had a huge effect on me. And everybody in my group was like, come on, you know, we, we got a lot of other stuff to see. <laughs> Let's go. Um, but I really took my time and I had a huge experience there. I, I, you know, I probably cried a couple times and it was this really big deal for me. So I'm sitting down that night with, um, you know, my sister and my cousins and stuff and I'm talking. And I'm like, I'm always talking, I think. <laughs> um, and I'm saying, you know, I don't know how I'm going to be able to get through our museum if, if that affected me that much, thinking about what those people went through and just the, the toll of genocide on not just the people then but through the generations and how these families are having to deal with that still, you know, the, the horrors of war and being targeted for extermination. You know, I'm carrying all that, and I'm not Jewish, and, and, and that's very removed from me. So how am I going to even deal with seeing our reality played out, you know, um, in exhibits and all this stuff? So I didn't have to <laughs> because it told none of our story, the museum. Um, we, we went into the museum, and there's artwork. It's beautiful. Uh, the architecture is amazing. I don't know if anyone's been there or see it. I've heard it's come a long way since, since I've been there, so maybe it's better now. Um, it, you know, they, they sell Indian tacos and fry bread, and you can look at baskets, and there's, like, a beaded pair of um, moccasins with, like, a Coke can or something, the, the label on it. So it was like, oh, we're modern, too. You know, it's cute. And um, and I remember feeling just very let down, like, you know, we can show this whole horrific scene that happened somewhere else that we weren't <laughs> responsible for in America, but when it comes to what happened on our shores, we're just going to show you the pretty things. Um, we're just going to kind of candy coat this, make it easy for everyone. Nobody's going to argue that these baskets and earrings and everything are beautiful. I mean, we take a lot of pride in them, too. They're lovely. But why are we so afraid of telling the whole story. And it was funny, we were at a barbecue the, the next summer and my grandmother, who's in her 80s now, uh, she had come to the museum with us and she's sitting, some of her friends are there who aren't native, and she says, oh, you know, I can't remember their names, we'll call them Bob and Kathy. Oh, Bob, Kathy, you know, you'll, you'll never believe how much we love this museum. It was such an, an, a tribute to us and an honor. She goes, Molly, and didn't you love that museum? <laughs> and I said, well, Grammy, I, I find a few of the things a little problematic. And I'm really careful when I argue with my grandmother. <laughs> she's, she's very, very tough. Um, so she, she started laughing and she said, well, I feel like a fool. You know, she said, um, she goes, I'm so, um, maybe call, I don't think she used the word colonized. She goes, but I'm so colonized in my own thinking that I thought this was a tribute to us. She goes, and I've, I'm so comfortable, um, surviving and just being happy when people throw us these little scraps that I didn't told, you know, I didn't even see what you saw when we went there. So it, it started a cool, um, discussion between the generations of how we're being portrayed, how our stories are being told, how we are 
you know, digesting that and, and kind of what we're doing about it. And now she tells that story as like a funny thing and, and she laughs about it. You know, oh, my, you know, my granddaughter had all this insight that I couldn't find. And, and I think she really would have gotten there if, if she had kind of marinated on it a bit. Um, so I, I think that that story kind of sets up the Thanksgiving discussion because it's all about how we're seeing that history, how we're talking about it to each other, what we're taking from it, and then ultimately what we're telling our children. Uh, my, this is my daughter right here. So she's, she's lucky. Lucky. <laughs> uh, to, have, to have our front row seat to a lot of the work that I do. I have a younger daughter who's 10 who, you know, would rather hang out with Grammy today. Um, but, but they come to a lot of things. They were present when Governor Mills signed the mascot bill into law, the bill banning mas Indian mascots in Maine. So I think it's really cool that, you know, I, I think they do appreciate these experiences right now, but we're definitely planting seeds so later they can say, wow, I, I was there when Indian mascots were, were banned in Maine, you know, and, and my mother you know, forced us to go to these things, but she, she saw that, you know, these things were important. So I'm not a historian, and I don't pretend to be one, so I may jumble some dates and names and all that. So I like talking about concepts, but I did do a lot of research into Thanksgiving um, and how it came to be and kind of um, how we've changed it over the years, the true story. And from what I can gather, there was a lot of tribal people in the New England area, many, many tribes, many that are gone now. Um, that, but, you know, you have the Wampanoag, the Narragansett, the Massachusetts, uh, the Pawtuxet, the Pequot, Mohegan. So they're all... You know, but before contact, they all had their societies. They, they had huge agricultural um, expanses of land, and they had methods that they were very good at. It was a very sophisticated system of things going on. Um, when the first settlers arrived, they, they were not the pilgrims. There was people here um, before them, and they brought with them disease. And I think we think about um, genocide as this bloody you know, act of killing people with guns and swords and all this sort of thing. But 90% of the indigenous people in New England were decimated mostly due to disease. Um, they had very different customs about hygiene and stuff like that than these settlers coming over. Um, it said that these settlers were often, you know, they, they didn't believe in bathing uh, that regularly. They thought that it was actually unhealthy. And they were, they didn't take all of their clothing off a lot because it was immodest. So it was just very different cultures. And uh, Native people uh, didn't wear as much clothes. Bathing was kind of worked into the societies. So because of just the different ways they lived, these germs infiltrated the Native communities very, very quickly, and they had absolutely no immunity to them. And there was one very bad plague that they're not sure if it was the Black Plague or smallpox or I think it was yellow fever or something, or a mixture of all of them, and basically the people would become very jaundiced and they would be like coughing a lot and basically just waste away. And, um, and at the time, nobody understood that germs cause disease and that things were contagious. So it was kind of everybody believed that God was somehow working through these diseases. 
<clears throat> right. So the uh, the settlers and the colonists believed, well, God is wiping out these people so that we can take over this land. Um, this was obviously meant to be, and, and we found this place, and uh, so it's interesting. And then the Native people, they kind of believe that too. Uh, there were some Cherokee, um, you know, you get down further south, there were some Cherokee priests that did away with all of their, um, you know, spiritual leaders that did away with their practices because they're thinking, you know, something is angry at us. And, and nobody understood that it was just simple um, contagious diseases that they didn't have immunity to. So, um, by the time the pilgrims came, I'll gloss over a lot of things, but by the time the pilgrims came, I think 90% yeah, 90 of the Native people in the region had been wiped out. And the pilgrims, it's often said that they were um, seeking religious freedom, but by some accounts, they were trying to establish a religious theocracy. They were kind of, um, you know, very rigorously religious and didn't accept other points of view. So they were trying to set up a place where they could be like the only game in town. <laughs> um, so they came in with that angle. So they found um, Plymouth, and it was already very well set up for human um, habitation because the tribe that had lived there had basically lived there for a very, very long time and then all died out from disease. Um, Tisquantum, who would later be known as Squanto, he was a tribe of um, this area, and he had been sold into slavery by the English in Spain. So he was stolen from his homeland, taken to England, sold into slavery in Spain. So he had learned how to speak English. So when he got back, all of his people were basically gone. Um, so, But he had this skill now of speaking English. So he became an interpreter and, you know, we're often kind of sold this thing, well, Squanto is the great unifier, you know, and, and he he was a friend. And, I, and the more you think about it, it was probably a very tactical thing. All my people are gone. <laughs> These people are here now. I know how to speak English. I'm going to fill this role and keep myself alive. So... Um, so we get to Thanksgiving, and I guess it's it's pretty much commonly accepted that there was a meal. Uh, there was about 90 Wampanoag people, about 50 of the original pilgrims that hadn't died, because a lot of them had died, too, um, on the journey and, and as they got settled here and were having a hard time growing crops and all this sort of thing. So there was an exchange of knowledge. There was an exchange of food. I guess there's no proof that turkey was served. I found out this fact. Uh, there was probably some wild grouse or, or game like that, and I guess the, the pilgrims had nowhere near enough food to feed everybody, so the native um, hunters went out and killed, like, six deer, and they brought that to the feast. So they ate mostly deer and, like, shellfish and stuff like that. So we have this meal, and like I talked about earlier, it's kind of um, Massasoit, Massasoit, the chief. Uh, he, it was believed that he saw this as, you know, a lot of his people had died out. They still don't have a handle on these diseases and why people are dying. So he kind of wants to keep an eye on these pilgrims. Um, so he brings his people in. They all have a feast. You know, there had been an event in the Virginia colony around this time as well, where the Virginia colony called the Potom Potomac, Patuxet tribe over uh, and said, we want to have a toast to peace. And there was 300 natives there, and they had poisoned them all. Aww. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it was probably, you know, any of these big get-togethers, everyone's, like, you know, covering their drinks probably. Um, 
Yeah, and the, the the chief that had led the people, he was kind of the first one. He he became very ill, and then they had realized that these these settlers in the Virginia colony had poisoned all of the natives at their thing. And the, yeah, there's these Virginia colony colonists were like digging up grave sites and cemeteries to loot the bodies of um, of dead native people. So. It, you, you got to come at this all with the settlers truly believed that the indigenous people were basically other animals and not humans. Um, I think that, I think even when they all sat down to Thanksgiving, you know, there's writings from pilgrims where, you know, they had gone in and stolen a bunch of corn from a native crop. And they're like, well, God led us to this corn, <laughs> and God led us to these Indians, so we're going to use them both. And it was very much this tone, not of gratitude, but of entitlement. Um, so that's where, you know, we have a hard time, I think, digesting it in our current context, because um, we, for the most part, see races, you know, most of us, I, probably everybody in this room, sees everybody from other races as, as human as they are. And in that time, it just wasn't that case. It was definitely this um, hierarchy. They thought it was savages, right? Oh, did absolutely. That, did that appear in some of the writing? Yeah. 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 And it was just this very, um, you know, you know, they use God a lot. So it was like, God let us here. <laughs> you know, this is our right. So not even a hundred years after this first Thanksgiving meal, we enter into King Philip's War. Uh, and King Philip is a um, leader. His um, father was Massasoit, you know, the chief that had helped in Thanksgiving. His, his name was Metacomet, but he took, they gave him the English name King Philip. And, and he was a chief. Um, so there was all kinds of kind of tension. His brother was chief before him, but it was believed that um, some accounts have him dying of appendicitis, but English doctors made it worse um, when they act that they're trying to help. And some accounts have him poisoned by the English. So King Philip takes over. Um, there's there's a Christian native who was thought to be a spy who turns up dead. I I would encourage you all to Google all of this because it's really fascinating, and I'm not going to get it all right. <laughs> um, so there's all this tension. There's kind of these three um, native men who are put on trial for what King Philip sees as unjust reasons. You know, they were accused of, of killing um, other English settlers. So they're all hung uh, kind of in town. So this is kind of like the tipping point for King Philip. He rallies other tribes. You know, there's interesting things going on with the French and the Dutch and a lot of other tribes and um, or tribes and how they ally with different um, settler cultures and stuff. And there's just, it be, it starts a very, very bloody time. And some historians call it kind of like a cold war in the years leading up to this. Everybody's stocking weapons. Everybody's kind of ready to go. And they say that um, even though it's kind of now we think of the English and the other European cultures as being better with guns, the natives had traded and had a lot of guns and they were hunting more, so they were really, really good at using them. So it was always hard to know who was going to kind of win these wars. It, it was almost a level playing field. So 90% of the indigenous people of this area had died out before the pilgrims came. Of what was left, 15% of the population died in King Philip's War. Um, so now we're looking at, you know, just utter, utter, you know, decimation of our populations. I think even now, when we think about the tribes in Maine, the Wabanaki, the Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, Mi'kmaq, and Maliseet, um, 
I, I was at a conference recently and a woman came to speak to it and she was from a tribe in Alberta and she said, I just want to thank you all here. She goes, you all had first contact. She goes, you've been dealing with this the longest. You've shouldered a lot of this um, burden for us and you've taken the brunt of a lot of things. She goes, so I thank you. And I had never thought about it in that context before, but here, you know, Wabanaki comes from um, a word meaning people of the dawn land because we see uh, the sunlight here first. And just by virtue of where we are, we're, we're getting all the contact first. So I think that Thanksgiving gives us an opportunity to tell these stories in a really real way and to also celebrate the fact that we are still here. And that was a big driving force behind making the change from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, because why would we want to celebrate um, the man who believed tribal people should be wiped out and exterminated to kind of make room for for progress and um, and these people to take over, why wouldn't we, if we're going to celebrate the origins of the country, uh, let's talk about the people who were here first and who have been stewards of these lands and waters for so long. So that's kind of um, the Thanksgiving, you know, just a really quick history on it. So how do we deal with all that now? And I, I think, you know, the title of this talk being Decolonizing Thanksgiving decolonization is such a huge concept and I think it works on many many levels I think in in the large scheme of things a lot of people will say well well where does that stop you know are you guys gonna give back your iPhones and, and go back to living in teepees you know? and I think that really misses the point because uh, I, I think decolonization can it, it's as simple as seeing the validity in the indigenous experience knowing who benefits from how the history has played out and how we interact with each other in a truthful and meaningful way today. You know, recently I spoke at Bates College and I was researching, um, there, there was a, a, a tiff at Bates College between somebody that had worked there as a professor and a tribal historian. And before I went to talk there, I wanted to know um, kind of everything that happened, and I wanted to support her in her work, but I also felt the need to go there and communicate some things. Um, so. so I'm researching Bates College and this professor that had taught there who is not a native, and I found all of these essays that kids in middle school had written, and it was, um, I think it was called Maine Native American Essay Contest. So there's all these kids who had written great little essays about Maine Native Americans, and they all cited this man in all of their papers, and he was like their only source. And, and I'm sure the information, um, some of it was good, but I'm thinking, why aren't we teaching kids to look for Native anthropologists and historians and archaeologists and experts and, and politicians and, um, and people that can give information with that real care to our ancestral ties and that attention to how we want to tell these stories and how we want to educate others. So I think in decolonization, it's even something as small as that, you know, supporting Native artists and, you know, bead, um, what do you call it, I guess artists, people that make earrings and, and uh, you know, beaded wear and blankets and baskets and stuff like that, instead of going to Walmart and buying a rug with like a tribal print on it, you know, finding ways to... Um, elevate and support real indigenous people is also a part of decolonization. Uh, another part is the conversations we're all having and how they shape our behavior, how they shape our public policy, 
Um, and, and I know a bit about that. <laughs> so, and I got started in activism. Uh, I went to the University of Maine. I graduated in 2006. I was pregnant with her. Uh, so I was, <laughs> I was kind of wondering how my life would, would go, and I ended up working in a human resources job for a very long time, and I hated it. I'll never do it again. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, it, but I was always working on these issues. It was kind of, you know, a, a passion of mine. I was always speaking out about Indian mascots. I was uh, running for tribal council. I ran twice, gone on it the third time. I was involved in you know, watching the water cases, the, the river cases unfold with our people. My father had served as chief. Uh, his name is Barry Dana. He had served two, ter two terms as chief uh, in 2000 and 2004. They were two-year terms back then. And I remember being in high school and going to a court case where the paper mills of Maine had sued the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy tribes for access to our internal tribal documents like council meeting minutes, um, Department of Natural Resources information, so that they could, I guess, pollute the water more. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, um, you know, so that they could kind of skirt regulations and, and have kind of an end to what was going on because we have very robust uh, natural resources department and we keep track of everything and if we knew about how much dioxin they were pumping into our waters um, that made them nervous and we absolutely did know. What year was that? It was 2001 I believe. Yeah it was in that time span. So I went to um, the court case and the, the Passamaquoddy chiefs at the time, the Passamaquoddy have two reservations. Um, so each of those chiefs were also named in the lawsuit and along with my father. And they were found, uh, they ruled in favor of the paper companies and they told the chiefs, if you don't turn over these documents, we sentence you all to jail time. So the chiefs, all three of them, were ready to go to jail. They were very, um, they were, they were ready to go for it. It was decided. We kind of had this meeting with our legal team and some tribal leaders. Well, why don't we meet all of with all of our councils and then decide how we want to proceed? So I remember being in that room. I couldn't vote yet, but I was there just observing. And it was a tri it was a tri council meeting with both Passamaquoddy councils and the Penobscot council, and everybody was weighing out our legal options. The attorneys were there as well. And uh, for every day the documents weren't turned over, the chiefs had to be in jail, and there was a thousand dollar fine imposed on each of the tribal communities. So we're all kind of talking while well, they're talking. I'm listening. And, um, and it was decided none of our communities have the resources to not only have our chiefs in jail um, with no end date and to pay a thousand bucks a day. So it was decided to turn these documents over. And it was done so in a march from Norridge Rock, which I'll talk more about in a minute, which is significant because it's the site of a massacre um, of our ancestors in the 1700s. They marched from Norridge Rock to Augusta with these documents and turned them over at the state house. And there was drumming and everybody's in, in ribbon shirts. And it, it's, it sticks in my mind as a really powerful memory um, of my teenage years. 
So I had always, it was never not an option, I guess, to be involved. I, I think that it's kind of our duty. Our ancestors were so silenced and so oppressed um, and probably had so much to say and didn't have the power in this um, society to be heard. So I feel like it's kind of always on me to, to keep speaking out about things. So I, I was elected to tribal council when we decided to pull our, no, I wasn't on council yet, it was the year before. We decided to pull our representative from the legislature. So we had had, in Penobscot, like way, way back, we had a um, linear system for choosing a chief. So that was called the old party, the people that believed in that. When the democracy bug kind of bit the tribe, we formed something called the new party, and nobody could agree on anything. So they would alternate. The old party would have an election, and then a term later, the new party would take over. So we were in this kind of limbo. And the, you know, there were some strong tribal leaders that stepped in and tried to solve this. And there was actually one man, um, John Attian, who happened to be a linear chief, but also was in favor or could deal with new party ways. So he worked with the state of Maine, actually, to soothe this out. And part of this kind of complete um, jump into a new party system informed by an old party system um, was helped out with the state of Maine. And part of this deal was the representative um, role. So a lot of people think that that came about after the 1980 Land Claims Settlement Act, but the representative actually goes way back. So we were in some of um, the first um, legislatures, I think, before it was even Maine. So... With all of the things going on with the river, with Governor LePage rescinding um, the tribal consultation order and further damaging relationships with the tribes, uh, a lot of other things going on in the state house, we decided, and it was not a decision we took lightly, but we did remove the representative. And I think our tribal representatives have done a lot of good things. Uh, Donna Loring, who is my great aunt and the current advisor to the governor on tribal affairs, she had been able to pass a law that requires teaching of Abenaki studies in Maine schools. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about that in a minute because it's certainly important to this discussion. So we, and, and that was without a vote. Um, our representative has never had a vote. They could sit on com uh, committees and have a seat in the state house, but they don't vote. And a lot of people kind of shake their head at that, but it's the idea uh, that tribal nations are sovereign nations and we're not municipalities, so there there needs to be that level, you know, we're not going to vote like Old Town Orono Bangor. Um, it, it's kind of a different structure. The Passamaquoddies also removed their representative that day, but they have since resat a representative. Um, and I'll get more into that. The Micmac are under a different agreement, and their chief and, and council members over the years have kind of taken on government relations. And the Maliseet have had a representative, and they don't currently. Um, chief Sabatis up there does a lot of that work. So that's kind of where we're at. I was on council working my HR job. The ambassador position came to light. It was kind of... Um, tricky because I needed to figure out if I needed to resign from council, if I wanted to take this appointment. I needed to figure out if I could leave my job <laughs> and go into this new job. And, you know, I'm a mother of two kids and there's a lot to think about. So I, I decided to go for it. And it's truly been, besides being a mother, the, the highest honor of my life. Um, it's been you know, I'm the first one to hold the position. I was appointed in 2017. So it's awesome that I get to do it. It's it's what I've always wanted to do. And I, and I feel like I'm really 
in tune with what I'm supposed to be doing. But it's also a lot of pressure because I am the first one to do it. So I'm kind of shaping what this role will be like. So, so far, it's been um, working in Augusta, working in Washington, D.C., doing a lot of events like this, um, talking in schools, working in in local governments around the reservations and kind of, um, you know, just really advocating through education and communication. So in our first, in my first session as ambassador, um, we were able to work through the ban on Indian mascots and the changing from Columbus Day into Indigenous Peoples Day. And I guess that's where it kind of ties back into the Thanksgiving discussion. The, the Columbus Day bill um, sparked a lot of interesting discussions. And we've been working on this for years and years and years in Maine. A lot of towns uh, made the change on their own. I don't know if Ellsworth... I think you all tried. Yeah, I, I remember working with somebody here that was trying to. <laughs> so um, I remember I went to Gouldsboro, and we had already had Bangor, Portland, Orono, Belfast. A lot of these towns, uh, Bar Harbor, had already made the change. So I had a friend in Gouldsboro, and um, she invited me to the meeting. It was on the agenda, and they do things. Um, it, it, it didn't have to go through just a city council or a town council. It had to be the whole town show up. So I went into the gymnasium, and, and it's just full of people. And this very nice, you know, I, I run into my friend, and she's all excited. And this very nice gentleman um, comes over, and he says, well, uh, thank you for coming, and we have you on the agenda as a visitor. First, we need to vote, take a vote to see if, people will let you talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, so I'm like, well, this is a nice long drive for nothing. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear me talk. Um, so they took a vote, and there was about 10 people that voted no, that they didn't even want to hear me talk. And they were all kind of in the front row, and so, uh, which was fun. So they... Um, before the Indigenous Peoples Day is on the agenda, they have something on there about a fireworks ordinance. It was like no fireworks after 9.30 or 10 or something, and it made everybody really angry. <laughs> like, no matter what side they were on, everybody got upset about these fireworks. You know, they, and they were, like, standing up and yelling at each other. And um, So they voted. I couldn't even tell you how the vote went because it was that just contentious on either side. And then it was time for me to talk, and everybody's mad at everybody. You know, (laughs) I think people are like trying to move out of Goldsboro. So, um, so I talked about Indigenous Peoples Day, and I talked about just how um, you know history truly is written by the winners, and that does a disservice to everybody when we're not telling the whole story. When we're teaching little kids. Columbus discovered America, he came here with his three ships, um, blah, 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 now we're all here. Uh, When we do that, we don't know how to react to, you know, truth and, and, you know, real things when we hear them, and we don't know how to interact with each other. Um, You know, growing up on Indian Island, we just didn't celebrate Columbus Day. Everybody went to work, went to school. It was kind of this, like, passive thing. But we all knew why we weren't celebrating it. We all knew that, you know, Columbus's men did these horrible things, and so did he, and that he was a war criminal, and he wasn't this hero. And um, so I I give this speech in Goldsboro. A lot of people talk about it. There's the Italian-American contingent um, that claim that Columbus is their hero, and they want to honor him. 
and and I and I have some some space for that. I guess I just think that. We should absolutely celebrate immigrants and Italian-Americans and all that, but why wouldn't they want to attach it to a better person or, or a better cause? <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, you know, people always say, well, you're erasing history. Um, but I think that there's – that was my impression, I guess, of this. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Um, so I, I think that – we should teach about Columbus. We should learn about him as a cautionary tale. Um, he was somebody that made contributions to the world and also did horrible things. We learn about Hitler in school. We don't observe Hitler Day because that would be silly <laughs> and awful. And so that's kind of how we see Columbus Day. Um, so back to Goldsboro, there's all this kind of passionate thing. One woman had good testimony about how there's native artifacts in, in that area that go back thousands and thousands of years, and, and they just they felt that to, to truly honor the origins of that land, they should switch to Indigenous Peoples Day. And, it, you know, her, her speech was lovely. So then they get to the vote, and they do just the verbal thing, uh, yay or nay. So, so the man running the meeting says... All right, I think it's a no. On to the next thing. <laughs> and so someone kind of like tugged his shirt and said it was way too close. You need to like do do a real vote and actually count. So they did. Um, they did a, a show of hands, and it was fifty-one to forty-nine in favor of Indigenous Peoples Day. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I remember. I, I texted the chief when I left, you know, he said, how'd it go? And I said, it was, like, as close as you can get. And I said, now all these people all have to go, like, live and work together and, you know, and, and go to, and their kids go to school together. I'm like, between the fireworks and this, you know, <laughs> I don't know how they're going to do it. Um, but I assure you, they are living and working together, and they're still friends and family, and, and that was about as divided on something as you can get, and each side had their convictions and their points, and at the end of the day, they made this decision to kind of move forward and progress as a, as a town, and, and now by making a statewide change, we are supporting them in that and validating those 51 people you know, who came into their town meeting ready to, to make this change. So at the state level, it kind of, you know, the, this goes back to uh, I had a meeting with Governor Mills before um, the primary even happened. So she wasn't even the Democratic candidate yet. And we had this elephant in the room of the lawsuit between the Penobscot Nation and her. <laughs> uh, well, it's the state of Maine, but she was the attorney general at the time. And basically what she contended, what the state contended, and she argued in the lawsuit, is that the, the Penobscot Reservation is the land, uh, the islands in the river, but not the river itself. Um, we had an opposing view to that. We say, you know, everybody agrees we're a sustenance fishing culture, so how can you tell us we can live on this fit, live, yeah, live by consuming fish if we don't have any way to ensure that there are fish or that they're healthy enough to eat? Um, so that's where we're at. She, from, from talking with her and knowing her a few years now, we, we've discussed this a little bit, um, and, and now obviously it's moved on to a new attorney general, and, and I'm hoping some of the work we did last session will help some of the litigation um, right now. And we're on appeal right now, so the Penobscot's lost in Maine, we lost in um, First Circuit in Boston, and now we've appealed it to a full review of, of uh, all the judges in the First Circuit. So that's kind of where we're at with that. 
So I come into this first meeting, and, and we know there's stuff we're not going to talk about. So we sit down, and I, I look at Governor Mills, then candidate Mills, and I say, well, I think you're going to be the governor. And she goes, well, I do too. <laughs> and she's seen that, and she likes my impression of her, and she's fine with it. And um, I said, so, what, so what, are, what can we work on together? We know we have this stuff we're not going to talk about today. You know we're not going to step down uh, as the Penobscot Nation. That stewardship over that river is always going to be there, and we're not ever going to concede that it's not part of our homeland. And, and she said, I get that. And um, so we talked about Indigenous Peoples Day, and we talked about the Indian mascot ban, and she was very much on board with both of these things. So we knew going into the session um, that should these bills get that far, she would most likely sign them. So I, I talked with my good friend, uh, Benjamin Collins, who is a rep out of Portland. He called me and he said, well, now that you're ambassador, do you want to do the mascot ban or do you want to do Indigenous Peoples Day? And I said, yes. <laughs> I was like, just, you know, we'll write them all. So we wrote them and, um, and got them through. And, you know, they got through the committees. Uh, Representative Rena Newell uh, from Passamaquoddy Tribe. Someone in this room might know her a little. <laughs> this is her daughter. Um, she gave a, a beautiful floor speech on the mascot bill. You know, I, I don't have a seat in the legislature. I'm often there up in the balcony watching things. But um, friends of mine are, are, read my words on the floor and stuff. Uh, Representative Newell did not need my words at all. She did a beautiful job. There, there was you know, crying eyes all over the room, the little pages that, that worked the room. They all came up and shook her hand after, and you know, everybody was just blown away. So if that bill wasn't getting over the finish line, I think Rena kicked a field goal that day. <laughs> it was great. Um, so we, we got the mascot bill through. We got Indigenous Peoples Day through. And, and both of these bills are very much along party lines. I think there was only a few instances where Republicans um, – came our way or Democrats went the other way. And I think that's unfortunate and um, because I see them as human rights issues and civil rights issues. And it's not about political correctness. It's not about local control. It's about doing the right thing, uh, getting on the right side of history, and really living together as neighbors in a truthful way. And I, I see these bills as a huge victory in moving towards those things. Uh, the only the only Democrat I know of uh, that voted against the mascot bill was from the town of Skowhegan, um, Representative Austin. And she came up to me in the uh, Democratic caucus that morning because I'm in there like all sweaty, you know, trying to like make sure everybody's going to vote like, like I think they're voting. And she says, you know, I respect you so much and I hope you bring this back if it doesn't get through, uh, but I can't vote for it and I think you know why. And she was very nice about it, and, and I said, I, I get it, you know, because there's those people in Skowhegan that want to keep these mascots. So in a weird kind of twist of fate, the school board member who ran Skowhegan Indian Pride, or maybe still runs it, is challenging Representative Austin for her seat. <laughs> so even though she, you know, remained loyal to them, she's still getting challenged um, by that kind of portion of the population there. Which is interesting. So um, what I've seen since we've passed the bills and we've had our first Indigenous Peoples Day, um, it, it went beautifully. There was also, I'll call them, learning opportunities. <laughs> uh, so we had the Waterville mayor who issued a mayoral proclamation, which I don't believe holds much weight, but he basically said the town of Waterville will celebrate Columbus Day. Like, that's it. We, and the, the tone he took with it was, 
Indigenous people were barbaric and were doing bad things to each other. Columbus came over, improved this whole continent, um, set us up to take this over, and that's the way it should have been, and I'm celebrating that, and that's kind of uh, his tone. And I, I knew that he had done it, but I hadn't read it, so a reporter called me and asked if I want to give a couple comments about it. I was watching my kid's soccer game. <laughs> I said, yeah, sure. So I walked back to my car, and she read, um, she read the proclamation to me, and I hadn't read it yet, and I had to, like, take a minute before I could comment. It was really, like, over the top. And um, So the University of Maine, Orono Republicans kind of picked up on this theme as well and decided to post all over their Facebook page how much they – wanted to honor Columbus and celebrate him and how the um, Aztecs were barbaric people. I'm not sure how that plays into things. <laughs> and um, so there's all this kind of um, how I saw it in the big picture of things. Once you get past the anger and the, you know, what, what is this all about type stuff, uh, once you get past all that, when you have people that have been in power for a long, long time, they start to feel very entitled to that place in the, in the pyramid, and, and they get very defensive if they feel like that's being threatened. And I think that when President Trump was elected, a lot of the kind of white supremacy that we saw rally around him didn't surprise a lot of us that have been doing kind of anti-racism activism and work for a long time. We know that this has always been bubbling there. So when we see all those charming men with their tiki torches <laughs> uh, marching in Charleston for white supremacy, uh, I think that was shocking to a lot of people and made a lot of people really sad. And while it certainly makes us sad, we're not shocked at all because we know that this has been bubbling and it's always, kind, you know, we're, we're facing this stuff a lot. In 2015, when Skowhegan first voted to keep their uh, Indian mascot, there was kind of, um, not even kind of, there was a very ugly few years there where I was still speaking out. We formed Not Your Mascot Main Chapter to kind of fight back against um, Skowhegan Indian Pride. And I mean, I was I was called a lot of things. I was nicknamed Princess Runs Her Mouth. Um, I was told I should be raped and murdered, that my body should be passed around a teepee, um, that a lynch mob was going to come find me. So, so none of this shocks me, or, or truthfully, none of it scares me. Um, I think that, um, you know, the, the answer is to establish these things that shake up that power structure. Um, let's pass these laws. Let's start these conversations. Even if only Democrats are on board, whatever, we'll, we'll get the policy in place, and, and then we'll work on the cultural shift. So a lot of people were upset about, you know, the, the college Republicans and Mayor Isgro and these people trying to perpetuate Columbus Day, and it's like, be, let's be patient. You know, people are going to try to bring back Indian mascots. They're going to wear their stuff to the games and all that sort of thing. But when we aren't validating that racism with institutions and with our government, it goes a long way in shifting that culture. And before we know it, you know, by my daughter's generation, she's not going to go to games where kids are going to be dressed in feathers and banging on fake drums and stuff. Um, because I think you know, we've, we're progressing. And a huge part of that progression is dispelling a lot of the mythology around things like Thanksgiving and Columbus Day and all that. Did you have a question? I do. Um, you spoke, mentioned very briefly the statutes that require uh, Native American uh, teaching in the mm -hmm. schools. And I had researched that some 
quite years ago, and I asked a few um, students, I think one was in junior high and a couple were in high school, and they said they weren't getting that, those classes. Mm -hmm. So if it's on the statute, um, how do you compel them to honor that? Because I think education is a big piece. Um, if the kids are learn how to appreciate the culture yeah. and understand why, and then it's to you also to um, how how involved have you been in the curriculum to right. make sure that it's accurate and that yes. it's taught by people with sensitivity and just there's a whole lot more details but I just wanted you to address the education part. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so LD two ninety one was passed in two thousand one. And uh, my aunt, Donna Loring, who was a representative then, she had this idea for a bill. And people told her, you're never going to get this passed. And she said, well, I'm going to try anyway. And people told her to lump it in with the main learning results. Um, but she was worried. There, I don't know. There was concern about doing that because it may mean that the whole thing might not pass. And she really wanted it to be a standalone thing. So the first way she wrote it was a mandate. Um, basically saying, you know, you will get defunded if you're not having this in your curriculum, and it's got a lot of teeth in it. She was basically told if it's a mandate, it's going to have a fiscal note, it'll end up on the appropriations table, and it'll die. You know, they weren't in the place where they could allocate any money towards it. So she wrote it as a requirement which is uh, not as strong as we've seen over the years. So it was, it was certainly, uh, it's great that we have it there. It's on the books. And in the, in the beginning, um, a lot of curriculum was written. The tribal communities were involved. They really, it was a big push to get it into the schools. And some schools have kind of held up over the years, but most haven't. Um, you know, we had a workshop on this last week. We did a symposium at the University of Maine Orono about like, you know, the 18 years since it's been written, where are we now? And a gentleman there, um, a professor, he said <laughs> the kids that were born when that law went into effect are 18 now. He said, so we really missed a big opportunity in educating this whole new crop of, of voters um, about this, you know, hopefully in other ways there, <laughs> we've done a good job. Um, so it's important. So when Governor Mills got into office, um, you know, Donna is now her tribal liaison, they worked together to establish a new work group, which I participate in, and, um, and other tribal leaders and educators, and Pender Macon, the commissioner of education, is leading it and doing a really wonderful job. We've had three meetings now, and it's kind of been, or two meetings, excuse me, one got canceled, um, and it's kind of been... What are the resources we have? Let's not reinvent the wheel. I hate that expression. I try not to use it, but, you know, that's been said a lot. And, um, you know, how are we going to get this stuff into schools in a thoughtful way? And I, I run into the bigger philosophical question of how much burden are we putting on tribal people to make sure this is being done? Because it doesn't seem like only our responsibility, but we want to make sure it's done right and people are now just slapping feathers on kids and having them play Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, so it, it's really, I, I think it's working right now with the coordination with the state and the tribes and, um, and teachers. Are you laughing at me? Yeah. It's the first time she's ever thought I was funny. <laughs> this is a big moment. Very good job by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, yes. Indigenous People's History of the United States, mm -hmm. kind of like an equivalent to Howard Zinn's book, mm -hmm. history book, um, written with a native perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but um, it's only got three references to anybody in Maine. Seriously? Yes. Right. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Thank you. 
Yes. Um, well, that cancels out my <laughs> question. Well, um, yes. I, I could just speak. The Abbey Museum has a tremendous oh, yeah. it's resource great. for Native American studies. Yep. Mm -hmm. An educator can go there and just find everything they need about us. So yep. our local stuff. Can I ask another? I'm a first grade teacher. That's yeah. why I'm here. I really care yeah. about how to teach this in a developmentally appropriate way, but also an honest way. Mm -hmm. Is there a place where the resources, I know you're, it sounds like people mm -hmm. are working on it now, so they'll probably be released, but that older stuff that had already been developed, is there a place where that's kind of... I believe you can find it on, on the... Um, online. Yeah, yeah on the... learning results. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that too. It's like a maroon book, maroonish. Yeah, that's a great book too. Yeah, the um, the we talked about that at the last meeting with a commissioner that um, we would be kind of collecting those resources. But you can find that original curriculum um, on the state website and also PenobscotNation.org. We have a culture section of our website. Our culture director is um, James Francis, who is our tribal historian, and he's done um, a great job at, um, and I'm sure other tribal communities have their cultural links on their websites too. Yeah, it's a good question. Because it's so true um, that it really, when you're getting these things to kids, you're going to have more thoughtful, um, inclusive-minded adults. And some of my work in Skowhegan, um, a man who was on the school board came up to me after one of the meetings and he kind of put his finger in my face and he said, I am just as Indian as you are and Skowhegan is my tribe. <laughs> so I remember thinking like, yeah, exactly. I remember thinking like there's like layers to human psychology here and it's about, <laughs> aren't I so nice sometimes? <laughs> and it's really about how are we identifying with things, why, um, why does this man feel in entitled to take on this identity that isn't his and ignoring the other parts of it. Uh, Rini Attian, who was a Penobscot activist uh, who's no longer with us, she had this quote about like cultural appropriation is like going into a convenience store and <laughs> taking all the candy but leaving the cleaning goods. <laughs> um, so you want to, you know, you want the good stuff, you want to be the the brave warrior with the feathers and everything, but you don't want to deal with the disease and the addiction and the intergenerational trauma, um, the diabetes rates, the heart disease rates, the, um, you know, one in three indigenous women will be murdered or assaulted in her lifetime. Uh, there's at least three of us in here right now. So that's, uh, that's something to really chew on. And I guess the Violence Against Women Act and all that sort of thing is a, definitely a topic that could go on for hours about. But we are seeing, um, you know, finally somebody is paying attention to these missing and murdered indigenous women. And uh, why are these not being, why are these perpetrators not being brought to justice? Why can't we figure out this jurisdictional stuff? Because people are, are dying um, and we're not doing anything about it. It's a huge crisis. And I think, you know, that brings us back to that Peter Pan movie and Tiger Lily and Disney's Pocahontas. You know, why, why are women seen as, dis why are Indian women seen as disposable and objects, you know? It's because we paint them like this on paper, and if we don't fit into that, uh, we're just throwaways, you know? So the objectification and, and dehumanization um, in the media and in advertisements and in movies and all that sort of thing absolutely informs the, the cycle of abuse and, and violence against uh, indigenous women for sure. Any more questions? Yeah. I have a little announcement. On PBS this all this past week on the World Station, Channel 3 on my antenna, PBS has been running some great Native American mm -hmm. stuff. Real, real good. 
They had Native American music last night. Even Jimi Hendrix has some Native American music. Mm -hmm. And then they had some animated cartoon kind of stuff about Native Americans. It was, it's on PBS. I think it's over now. On the World Station on PBS. It was really awesome. Good. And, you know, reality, not, you know, sugar filtered. Right. Awesome. Yeah. It's a great article in this week's. New Yorker magazine about the history of uh, Thanksgiving, yes. and it's about a four-page article on the back of the magazine, mm -hmm. but it's, a, it's called The Truth of Thanksgiving or something. Mm -hmm. It goes through a lot of the things you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, I, I read it actually as part before I came here today. It is excellent, yeah. And and just think about like 10 years ago, we weren't really reading anything like that, you know, so the, or if, or if it was, it was written by Native people, nobody else read it because <laughs> nobody cared or nobody could find it. Um, so now it's mainstream and it's real. Yeah. yeah. A friend of mine and a group of her friends started a group called Pathways, I think. Path, a group of my friends in the Unitarian Church called, got together and got a group together called, I think, Pathways. And what this was, was legislature aimed at fighting the law on the main books that indigenous children would be taken away from their homes and their families and put into white cultures, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They started this group and they got the law eliminated and mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you know how that's going. Yeah, so that's, that's a big issue with deep roots. Um, there's a documentary called Dawnland. Okay. <laughs> Usually I say that I got a lot of heads going. Um, they, they did a beautiful job, Adam and Ben and, and Tracy and, and everybody involved in that, Esther. Um, they did a beautiful job of showing a very tragic thing in a very human way. And I think anybody that's seen that movie, uh, you can really relate to it if you have children. I mean, all of us once were children. Um, so the federal government kind of had an Indian problem on its hands. They had, um, you know, in the, in the Midwest, they tried to break up reservation lands into allotments and, and have Indians kind of live like everybody else. And, and that wasn't working because, um, you know, shady things were going on in the land dealings and, and Indians were just being Indians. <laughs> Nothing was killing the culture. It was like, you can give us this little parcel of land and a house and try to force us to assimilate, but there was still ceremony going on. There was still, um, you know, community things going on. So, um, and obviously there's a lot of other issues occurring in the United States at this time, but somebody had the idea in the government to start these boarding schools, mm -hmm. and the idea was to kill the Indian and save the man. So they weren't able to wipe Native people out with disease and warfare. They weren't having a good job, a good time assimilating them by other means. So let's get the children. Um, let's indoctrinate them from a young age, separate them from their families. Um, these kids were taken from their homes without warning, taken sometimes thousands of miles away. They had their hair cut. They had their clothes changed. They were beaten for speaking their native language. Um, so they had to learn English. And a lot of these schools were run by uh, religious figures, nuns and priests and stuff. So these kids may have been taught that God is actually working through these people. So who's going to argue with God? You know, so there was, there was definitely, you know, that Christianity still kind of imposing itself on this process as well. 
Um, and this infiltrated into the foster care system, especially uh, we've seen it in Maine, as you can see in Donland. Uh, kids were taken from their families, often without a thorough vetting process. You know, nobody could tell why these um, nobody could tell these parents why the kids were being taken. There weren't like home visits to see if they were unfit. They were just kind of targeted and stolen and put into uh, non-native foster families with um, the hope that they would be assimilated into white culture and there would be less um, kind of of that Indian thing <laughs> in the state, uh, less resistance. So, and now we have you know, when we think of genocide, like I said before, we think about maybe the disease and the guns and the warfare and the bloodshed and all that. But we have this second wave when we're targeting the culture of a people. Um, when you're telling children that they can't speak their language or pray in the way they were born to pray, that they had to convert to Christianity. Um, you know, when, when you really kill that Indian in the man, we saw a whole second wave of genocide. And some of these people grew into adults. You know, some aren't much older than I am. It's not a very long ago thing. Um, and they're adults and they're displaced. They're, they're unsure of who they are. They've had a lot of traumatic experiences in the boarding schools or in these foster homes. Um, because nobody really kept an eye on these foster homes. There was a lot of abuse going on, uh, sexual abuse, a lot of other abuse. So we have this generation of, of highly damaged people not their fault. Um, some of them come back into the communities. They feel like they don't belong. And, and it's that cycle of oppression all over again. We get into the unhealthy coping skills. Um, there's negative effects on the family life. And, and we pass on that trauma to another, another generation. So, um, yeah, it's been really important to look at that issue. That's a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether you want to take the time to talk about it, but the Truth and Reconciliation mm -hmm. Group, it, um, that, that's what this is. Mm -hmm. That's what it's called, Truth and Reconciliation. Yes. Um, and yes, so in Dawnland, um, they formed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think it was with Wabanaki Reach. Um, and they all did a lot of that work of interviewing the people that have been victims of, of the foster care system and, and getting their stories down and then working in a way um, that, didn't, that didn't leave them just kind of raw and hurting. I think they worked with them. You know, that's the truth and the reconciliation. So they submitted um, a report to the state about their findings um, so that this is, you know, this, both of your questions tie into each other. Um, and Secretary of State Matt Dunlap was on the commission. So it was tribal people uh, and others, and it was kind of a holistic look. And the, the movie Dawnland takes you through some of that. And they won an Emmy as one as the they best did. documentary. Yeah, um, they did. <laughs> it was pretty exciting to see that happen. Oh yeah, it's super well done. It's a yeah. great movie. Molly, and given that Thanksgiving is a celebration of gratitude, right? Mm -hmm. And given the very difficult history that we've been discussing here today, how would you like us to think about Thanksgiving? Great question. I was chewing on that on the way down here. Um, I think that just being aware of the indigenous experience, teaching each other and your neighbors and your children um, about your truths, uh, you know, working in the political process to elect leaders that are more uh, aware and sympathetic to the truth of all groups in this country. Um, so it can be done at, you know, in your own homes, it can be done civically. And when we think about Thanksgiving, um, 
I think celebrate it, but also reflect on it a lot. Um, you know, I, I got this like reputation as like coming after holidays, I think. <laughs> so I wanted to make it clear, um, you know, Thanksgiving. I think there's a real learning opportunity here. And I, you know, just in the, in the years I've been doing activism work, um, you know, when I first got started doing this, and, and I'm 35 now, so when I was like 15, you know, even talking about Indian mascots was like, oh, you know, go away. You know, you're being sensitive. We're honoring you. It's, it's not a big deal. So to even, you know, then to think about challenging Thanksgiving or Columbus Day, you know, people would have laughed you out of the room. So I think just the progress we've made already, you know, that we're all in this room, different generations, um, different backgrounds, and we're all talking about these very real true things. And that and that we're not afraid of it. I think fear is such a huge part. I think that's why we've kind of watered down history so much and candy coated it because we're afraid of like the unrest if people find out the truth. And I mean, it's nobody in this room um, slaughtered my ancestors, you know, so I don't think it has to be a thing about bad blood. I think it's like we accept our individual and shared realities and this is how we move forward together. And I don't ever think it has to be about guilt or um, or being accused. Right. Yeah. Or, or control what? or any of that. Feeling she accused. She said feeling accused. Mm. You know, I I don't come at my work as, um, you know, there's kind of this trend now where indigenous people call all other people, um, some, some activists call them settlers, you know, and, and I'm not totally on board with that because, um, you know, don't tell them I said that. <laughs> they're, they're my friends and I respect them. Um, but I'm not, I, I feel like it's a little uh, accusatory and, and I think that, you know, I'm, my grandfather is a white man, um, so I feel like having this hatred is really hatred at myself um, if I were to embrace that, and I don't think it's a time for hatred right now. No. So that's where I'm at on that. Yeah. There are alternative ways to observe that day. On the East Coast, it seems to have evolved into the day of mourning, mm -hmm. where, where there's a march and a rally. Uh, in Plymouth, mm -hmm. Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and yeah. on the West Coast, where I used to live, um, there's kind of a movement toward un-Thanksgiving gatherings, where you have large potlucks, and you don't have any traditional Thanksgiving food on the table, you <laughs> share a meal, and you do it in a consciously um, alternative yeah. way. Yeah. So there are other things beyond maybe the option of bringing it up at the dinner table. Right. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. Thank you for bringing up day of mourning. I, I meant to talk about yeah. that, and 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 that's valid, and I like it, and I respect that. And um, you were talking, and I got my brain lit up about something, and then I think it went away. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I I think that the day of mourning is good, and I I, I guess however. However it feels valid and truthful and good, and, and if, if you know you're going into an environment where everyone's going to be wearing pilgrim hats and feathers, <laughs> you know, maybe that's not where you want to go. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I spoke at the UMaine Multicultural Thanksgiving last week, and I talked with the organizers about um, the, how it's a festival of a harvest, you know, I, I think at its roots, you know, because it wasn't even called Thanksgiving for like 200 years. Abraham Lincoln was being lobbied very hard during the Civil War uh, because um, people had found out about this meeting between pilgrims and Native people. 
So he actually called it Thanksgiving in like the 1800s or in the Civil War. So it's not like uh, it's woven into, you know, the very founding of the country. I think it's it's natural to celebrate the harvest of your crops. And we're going to go into this 14-month winter here (laughs) and and darkness and coldness and, um, you know, so why not get together and feel thankful and good and, um, yeah, but, and I'm so glad you brought up or made me come back to the education piece because I think if we start with the children now, like, yes, this is a holiday Thanksgiving, this is what really happened, there was this meal, there was also really bloody wars, um, so use it as a day to reflect on your American experience, feel thankful for, for living here and for your neighbors, and make sure you embrace their whole story. Yeah. I was in a circle of 50 people, and um, we were going around introducing ourselves, and we were asked to just acknowledge the land on mm-hmm. which we grew up as children. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just, they were from all over the country, and every, I'd never heard of so many tribes before. And so for Thanksgiving, I think just acknowledging that um, we are here on Wabanaki land mm-hmm. and, um, um, and be, be grateful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the land Thanksgiving, I think. Yeah, definitely. The land acknowledgments are a great thing. I was getting asked to do them a lot. And the more I thought about it, the more I feel like that's not my job. Right. Um, my job. Because I feel like I, I know... I'm aware <laughs> of the land. I, I know what happened and, and why uh, we are where we are. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of putting it back on people now. I'll say I will for sure come to your event if you would like me to, to talk about something else. But I feel like the land acknowledgement should come from you. Um, and that puts us in this in this nice place together. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do like land acknowledgements. But I, but I don't do them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I want to quickly share an experience because thank you for coming. Thank mm-hmm. you for all your work. I was really impressed with your speech at the inauguration. Thank you. Everything has happened since then. But coming from a town in Connecticut, we were the Monongatuck Indians in our high school. Mm-hmm. And people on board when I went going to my 55th high school reunion on the way down there, hearing WERU, hearing Donna Laurie's program, mm-hmm. hearing a tribal member talk about what it felt like for him or for his children to go into school and see them being made as mascots yeah. made me really have to think about that in a way I never thought about it before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just accepted it, accepted our history, always mm-hmm. this wonderful, and then going down there and actually finding a couple of my classmates and saying, well, I'm going to put this out there to say, what would you think about trying to change our mascot? How would you feel about that? And actually getting a positive reception by at least these mm-hmm. couple of classmates. Wow. And then hearing from a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who's having a group together who started to approach this topic and saying, you know, what do you think about this and how do you do it? How do you approach it? And she said, well, I think the best thing to do is just approach it from seeing history as it really was, mm-hmm. getting people to see. And the history of the Monongatuck Indians in Guilford, Connecticut was not a pretty one. Mm-hmm. We didn't grow up with that history. It was very sad history. Most of and the just to get history. a different view about what really went on there as a starting point to why we need to change these. We're not honoring. This is not right. a thing to honor this yeah. history. We need to, you know, somebody was saying. And then I turned on the radio that day, and there's a program on, same hour program about um, no history, not about us without us mm-hmm. history, and teaching that kind of history from a Native American perspective. And it just made a huge impression on me. Just, you know, yeah. turned things around. But thank you.
No problem. Yeah, the mascot thing, I think in its simplest terms, it's just about shared humanity. Um, I like to say, if we tell you something hurts, you don't get to decide that it doesn't, right? It's, it's so simple. Um, when, when we were working in Skowhegan, uh, after one of the, the forums, I was approached by this young man, and he, he was like 16, 17 years old, and he had been kind of chosen by Skowhegan Indian Pride to be the face of their movement, and they're the group that wanted to keep the mascot. So he was outside all of our meetings, you know, holding up a sign that says, don't take my heritage, I'm an Indian, you know, this poor little thing. He was just very, like, um, thrust, I think, in the spotlight by adults. So he came up to me after, the, after one of these meetings that, thing, you know, things had gone bad. I, I think I got escorted from the microphone by a police officer. <laughs> and um, it yeah, you weren't there. <laughs> I, I did not bring my children to Skohegan, I think, most of the time. So, um, so he comes over to me and he says, you know, and I don't know how this is going to go, and I'm an adult and he's a kid, so I'm like making sure people are around. And, uh, you know. and he said, I have to tell you that um, as a Christian, I've been raised to honor other people and their experience. He goes, and when you talk about this, I see pain in your eyes. He goes, and as a Christian, I can't support this mascot anymore. Right. And I thought, you know, this kid doesn't care about the psychological studies or the data or why, you know, the rates of, you know, bad things in our people. He cared about looking in my eyes, seeing that I was in pain, that these actions caused me pain. And it was just this simple human experience that we shared. And this was a child heavily indoctrinated by adults that he trusted, that he was probably a bit afraid of. And he found it in himself through through his God and, and what he believed in um, to come around and kind of come to the right side of things. So uh, yeah, with, with mascots, it can be super like gobbledygook and you know about intellectual things, but at the very core of it, it's it's really about that human experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I appreciate your point about uh, putting land acknowledgments on non-native people, and mm-hmm. I. That on. I'm a person who wants to be a better ally, um, but if it's okay, I'd love to ask like what feels like important elements. I'm like, thinking about doing it in a classroom with children. Mm-hmm. So like what feels like I've heard you talk about stewardship, which feels really important mm-hmm. to the legacy of Native people in this country. Um, are, there, are there other things that you feel like are important to incorporate? Sure. I, I saw one land acknowledgement that simply said, Indigenous people have always been here and they will always be here. <laughs> so so that's awesome. If, if you want to dive deeper, I, I think you can find everything you need in that. It's the acknowledgement um, of the ancestral ties. Obviously, we are still here because of a certain resilience um, and stewardship of the land. You know, we've taken care of the land and it's taking care of us. And then, um, and then there's a a piece that can be delicate about how non-natives have benefited from our demise <laughs> or our, you know, attempted uh, the genocide of our people. So it's acknowledging, you know, we, we exist, we create, we think we live in these spaces um, because we're able to be here and we've benefited from the, the theft of land and resources. So um, that's a fact. And, and so I've heard some land acknowledgments go way into that and, and some shy away from it. But it, it's something um, to chew on if you want to, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I found out this year, doing some family genealogy on my dad's side, that Samuel, Dr. Samuel Fuller, one of the pilgrims, and they weren't really called pilgrims that back then, but it's a sort of a misnomer, but 
the people from the Mayflower, Dr. Samuel Fuller, who's one of my direct grandparents. Um, and it's, very, it's been very difficult to have that information because I and have it for a long time with, um, with the Native people. Uh, so I've always been a little bit uncomfortable about Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. My daughter runs Restorative Justice Institute of Maine, so she's mm -hmm. involved with some of the um, revelation that's, that's happening um, as well. So it's a very interesting dynamic going on mm -hmm. in our family right now, but, but one thing that sort of saves me. Well, one thing is that we're very open and we talk about these things um, in our family, but one thing that sort of saves me, if you will, um, and allows me to continue to celebrate my heritage, uh, being connected to that pilgrim, if you will, um, <laughs> is that, you know, he was the eighth signatory on the Mayflower Compact. Mm -hmm. The Mayflower Compact was the first document which preceded our Bill of Rights, and that's sort of an organized um, government here in the U.S. And that's important, mm -hmm. and that's that's a good thing because they sat down and said, "We just can't you know, wing this. We need to have we need to have an agreement. We need to be civil, and we need to so so that aspect. Mm -hmm. um, there are some pieces I think that are are, yeah. are definitely worth celebrating. My daughter will serve turkey. None of us will really eat the turkey. We celebrated when she was younger. We celebrated turkey, and she has since lost her dad. So it's important that that turkey is served. So I think it's all very complicated. Yeah. And that is right for everybody, really. But I see that in my own family, and so I just wanted to kind of that little story because I think it's complicated for most of us. Mm -hmm. And getting through it is, as you said, and um, as many others have alluded to, is important to, to talk and to process and to learn and, and that's I think the best we can do. But definitely keep celebrating every day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Especially if it's a day off of work. <laughs> Someday generations from now Donald Trump will have like six generation descendants and they'll have to deal with their <laughs> 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 yeah. I just want a quick question. You, you seem to be using indigenous, native, Indian. So is there a preferred word? I, I tend to jump around. I, I think when I talk about um, me, I say I'm a Penobscot. We're part of the Wabanaki Confederacy. Um, and I use indigenous probably the most um, because I think it really conveys that, that stewardship and that, um, that nativeness of this land. In my work in government, um, Indian is used all the time because all the laws and acts are uh, Indian. So I, I throw that in a lot. And then I think that we've kind of, um, you know, in our communities, we've just taken that on historically. Um, a lot of people, you know, will make jokes like it's the most Indians I've ever seen in one room or, you know, like in Smoke Signal, she fed 100 Indians with 50 pieces of fry bread because she rips them in half. So it's like, it's, um, yeah, maybe nobody's seen that movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sherman Alexi, who is problematic at this point, but it's a great movie. 
Um, I actually got to reenact a little bit last week. I went to that <laughs> multicultural Thanksgiving, and they were serving fry bread. And the very nice girl said, I want you to pick the very best piece. And I have um, a digestive issue. I have diverticulitis, so I don't really eat fry bread anymore. So I brought it home to my kids. And the, the scene in the movie is she has this huge thick gathering to feed, and she only brought 50 pieces of fry bread, so it's all dramatic, and she rips them in half and, like, yeah, feeds to, like, everybody. Hold your head, like, yeah. Pew. So I, like, I, I fed both my children with this one gift. Of <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I did. But, yeah, I, um, I'll, I'll jump around a little bit. And I, I, I can appreciate that some people don't like the word Indian, it was kind of um, a mistake from the get-go. There are Indians from India, um, so that's, you know, a, a different layer to things. Um, so, yeah, when I'm talking about kind of, like, in my work voice or whatever, because all those acts, I'll, like, I'll say Indian. But I guess when I refer to myself, I mostly say Penobscot. Yeah. Okay. I probably don't use Native American that much. Um, I, I think I like the other words better. But I'm not one to get prickly about what you call me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, looking on the website here, Penobscot Indian Nation, is there any news on the <clears throat> citizenship of the river committee? Mm -hmm. I don't see it on here. Um, so we voted at our general meeting this year, which is like our lawmaking body, to give citizenship rights to the river. Mm -hmm. So other places have done it around the world, and we're hoping that it will assist us in these legal struggles uh, because we'll be able to kind of assign the river the rights of a human being. And right now we, we're taking applications for the committee, and I think at the next council meeting they'll review those applications and then kind of set the parameters for how we want them to operate um, and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, we're, we're working on it right now. Thank you for the question. It's good. One more question. Yeah. Your um, statistic about violence to women mm -hmm. is horrible. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just wondering what can be done? How can that begin to change? So right now, um, the Federal Violence Against Women Act, we kind of have something going on at the state and the federal level around that. Um, there's also a couple other acts. There's an act about, um, it was named after Savannah Graywind, who was a, a pregnant mother who was kidnapped and murdered, but her baby lived, so that was a tragic case. Um, so that act has to do with like the, the database keeping and all that sort of thing. We have a, um, a, a couple other acts. So we're kind of coming at it from a few ways. The, the biggest problem is that we haven't been able to effectively persecute non-native offenders against native women on reservations Whoa. and in territories. So like I think right now we have we have never had a domestic violence conviction um, from a case happening on Indian Island oh. like ever. Um, they'll get pled down. Huh? I thought there was like I don't think so. They'll they'll get a lesser charge of um, you know, misdemeanor, um, criminal mischief, or what you could, disorderly conduct. That's mostly what it is. Um, so we're taking these victims. Um, you know, there's there's some convictions in higher courts, and we can figure out the jurisdictional stuff. But we're taking these victims and re-traumatizing them by kind of dragging them through different legal systems, and then we're rarely ever seeing justice for what happened to them. And, and it's a problem all over the country. So we have 
tribal courts, um, we have state courts, and then we have the kind of BIA and the FBI that will come in and act um, for the on the tribe's behalf if we can't figure it out. State courts will often look at these things and say, well, we can't deal with that. This is a tribal issue. Tribal courts often can't um, persecute felonies, so they have to send them elsewhere. So every single reservation, I think, is kind of a jurisdictional maze. And... Um, you know, we have these mining camps and oil drilling sites, and we have women getting um, raped and murdered and left for dead by the workers at those sites, and, and nothing just seems to be happening about it. So the, the Violence Against Women Act, which was part of the crime bill um, in the 90s, was reauthorized in 2013. It expired about a year ago, and it's kind of been in limbo. And that's basically given resources um, and kind of um, help in this jurisdictional thing. It hasn't applied to Maine tribes ever because of our Land Claim Settlement Act, which treats us like municipalities. So that's kind of an extra layer to things. I warned you Valbo would take a little bit. <laughs> um, so at the federal level, basically, the House came up with a version. Representative Shelley Pingree gave a great floor speech. They got language added in to cover the main tribes that have tribal courts. And the House version was basically kicked out by the Senate. Um, Senator Mitch McConnell, <laughs> um, he knew that President Trump wouldn't sign it. So, you know, we're in this kind of like mess we're in a law where the House comes up with really good legislation. The Senate knows they can't get it through to the president. Um, so we're like, you know, we, yeah, it's a mess. So right now the Senate has come up with a version. To the best of my knowledge, the main tribes are included so long as Senator Susan Collins doesn't have an issue with it. So we, yeah, so we've been working to kind of help her understand she shouldn't have an issue with it. Um, so that's where we're at with that. I, I, the Senate version, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've skimmed it. I, I, it does kind of weaken some tribal sovereignty in some areas, so it's not a best-case scenario. Um, but we'll hopefully get that reauthorized. At the state level, Representative Rachel Talbot Ross out of Portland wrote a bill last session extending VAWA provisions to um, Penobscot and Passamaquoddy tribes, so we have tribal courts. And um, that bill made it through the House and the Senate, and it has sat on the governor's desk all summer because there's some nagging language we need to clean up. Um, so our legal team has been working with the state attorney general, and we're really, really hopeful. Well, first, we're hopeful that the federal act will pass, and, and that will alleviate some things. But we're also hopeful that within the first like month or so of the session, we can get it back to the governor, um, and that she'll sign it. So. It I know you said no more questions, but anyway, how well are you, how well are the indigenous people of Maine able to work with Susan Collins? How responsive is she to your issues? Um, not much at all. Um, yeah, I've, I've had. I've, I've probably met with the senator five times now over between my council work and now. And, and I find her, she'll kind of, um, it, it's kind of a smoke and mirrors type thing. She'll, she'll kind of parade out things she's done in the past, but then when we ask her kind of substantial things right now, she doesn't have a whole lot to say. We have been able to get Senator King to um, 
to differ from her a little bit because a lot of times he'll just defer and say, well, I'll, I'll go with her. She's a senior member. And we're seeing him kind of spark some more interest in being more helpful. Um, Representative Shelley Pingree is probably one of the best travel advocates in the country, maybe. She's been excellent with us, and, and we have a good relationship with uh, Representative Golden. So. Yeah. All right, I'm going to call time on this. All right. I mean, you've been very patient and given us a lot of time. If you're willing to hang around, I know people would talk to you in the lobby. But awesome. thank you so much. Thank you.